Let's get into it. Get to it. Get started. Get started. Get started. Let's get it started. Let's get it started. Let's get it started. Hi there. My name is Tom Chick, and you are listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast for, I love saying this, the Ides of March. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know what? Once again, uh, this is a recurring theme on the Quarter to Three Games podcast. We, we, have, we yeah. have failed to brief our guest on how we do the introductions. Yep. <laughs> it's, it's, we so, I'm just hanging up there. Huh? What we're going to do... Yeah, what we're going to do is we're just going to run through it, and we're going to see if our guest we're going to see if our guest can pick up on on how this works. So, Soren, this is your first challenge on the Quarter to Three Games podcast. Stand by. Here we go. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Journey. Oh, nice. My name is Jason McMaster, and my game of the week is not Star Wars: The Old Republic. So, stop sending me emails. Now, here's where we see, Soren, this is normally where we would have told you, then right. you say your name and what your game of the week is, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just let you take it from there. All right, I'll just <laughs> I'll roll with it. Uh, I'm Soren Johnson, and my game of the week is not Wasteland. Awesome. Oh, nice. <laughs> Soren, I have to say, you're pretty quick. <laughs> you can pick up yeah, on that. That's, that's good, yeah. yeah. I was able to name a game. It was pretty impressive. <laughs> uh, well, I remember Wasteland being one of the... Uh, the first games that I ever actually like finished, like wow. got through to the end, and uh, and it's yeah. a very hot topic this week too. It is. It, it is. is. You know what? It may be. It we will. It we may will make other parents. We'll right. See. It's kind of sexy. It's sexy. <laughs> it's it's trenchant. It's current. So uh, we will be doing uh, some news of the week shortly. But first, uh, I want to take Mr. Johnson here to task. Uh, I uh, uh, I've. Worked like Soren. I've talked to you before. We just did a panel at GDC. Uh, I've heard you on podcasts. I've been with you on podcasts. Uh, here is something. Here's my observation of you, Soren Johnson, and I want you to help disabuse me of it. You are a very sort of analytical, almost like professorial type fellow. Okay. You might be a little too smart for most of us. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> the kiss of death, because Chick and I aren't very smart. We all know this. But uh, well, we're, you know, I make no claims to be, you know, maybe Soren's a little highbrow for this crowd, I'm just saying. So, Soren, I, I want you to take this opportunity to share with us something that you consider a guilty pleasure. Like, what's something that is dopey, that is not appropriate for someone who's analytical and professorial? What's something you enjoy? that you might consider, like, lowbrow or dopey, a, a guilty pleasure? Um, ooh. That's a good question. Uh, I, love the fact, I love the fact that you can't, that nothing comes to mind for you, that you're having to search for something. If you say, like, Mozart, I will slap you. <laughs> here, here you go. Like, here's a, just to sort of maybe prime the pump a little, Soren. Uh, like, is there a dopey TV show that you watch, or, or is there a stupid book that you read recently? Or, are you into Stephen King or something like that? Yeah. Uh, does, does Jetpack Joyride count? Nope. Sorry, because nope. those oh, guys... It's a pretty good game. I mean, yeah. Yeah, Not only a pretty yeah, good yeah. game, but one of the things at GDC, I went to a talk by one of the uh, developers of that game, and those guys are super smart, and even though it's a simple, fun game, it's a really shrewd design. So. Yes, it is. It's very clever. Hey, you know what, Soren? Here, here we go. Okay. I will instead administer this to you in the form of a quiz. Okay. Uh, 
All right. Good, good. Here, this is a quiz to determine whether or not you are really a dork or just a really smart guy masquerading (laughs) as a dork, which is what we're we're aiming to find out. I'm going to ask you five questions. For each one you get right, you get a point. If you score three points or higher on this quiz, we will accept you as one of us. Okay. Okay. Here we go. Soren Johnson, what does Thacko mean? Oh, I know this one. Because uh, you're a dork. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not sure if this this is going to help my highbrow uh, nature, but uh, two hit armor class zero. Okay, yes. Johnson has one point. <laughs> <Okay. laughs> so pull this one down. All right. All right. Johnson, why can't Obi-Wan do a Jedi mind trick on Watto? Uh-oh. Mm. Uh... I can t- I can tell the worry in your voice. Yes, this is one. This is from one of those. This is the from the un- Star Wars movies that should not be mentioned, right? Now you don't uh, get any points by knowing that Obi Wan is a Star Wars name. So you are correct. Right. <laughs> um, I'm going to guess because it's a droid. Oh wow, mm, kind of close. No, he's actually a toy dar a toy darian, uh, and of course, as everyone knows, toy darians are force resistant. Soren, don't don't feel bad because you, you have to understand any quiz with Tom, uh, uh, Saint Thomas Aquinas Chick, is a <laughs> friend of the animals. Is uh, it's kind of stacked in his favor. <laughs> Yeah, I've heard I've heard his quote unquote quizzes before. Yeah, oh, yeah they're awful. God, he, yeah. he loves love, to just do those. I love the one about uh, Middle Earth a couple weeks ago. Oh yeah, where he's asking specific that was, that questions. Was crazy. Oh. He got everything right, basically. That was like a real question. As you know, yeah, you're, he Dave, shot him down. Yeah, yeah. Dave Markell uh, took our Lord of the Rings uh, quiz, and he kind of pwned us. I, I would say. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, with a total P. I mean, a total P. You're correct in the uh, pronunciation. Yeah. Thank you. So, Soren Johnson, you have one point. We have three questions right, okay. to go. Okay. How much... Oh, you know what? I'm going to save that one. Okay, one or more of these... I'm going to give you a list. One or more of these is not a villain from Batman. I'm going to give you one, two, three, four, five. I'm going to give you... One, two, three, four, five. I'm going to give you five names. Can I even count right? Yeah. And you tell me one or more of these is not a villain from Batman. Tell me which one is not an actual Batman villain. Okay, you ready? Calendar Man, Scarecrow, (laughs) The Riddler, Lizard, Victor Zayas, something like that. There's a lot of Zs, a lot of Ss, and actually six names, I'm sorry, and Sasha Gray. (laughs) So Sasha Gray, Victor <laughs> McMaster, nice, nice poker face, McMaster. <laughs> oh, for Christ. <laughs> so let me give you the names again. Tell me which one of these is not a Batman villain. Sasha Gray, Victor Zayas, Lizard, The Riddler, Scarecrow, and Calendar Man. Wow. Um, okay. Well, I was thinking Calendar Man sounded pretty good at the beginning because that sounds pretty ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um but then, what's the third from the last one? Uh, lizard. Okay. The lizard. Then those... The lizard. I don't know. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, that's that's reasonable. Um, no. But then I'm just totally confused about Sasha Gray now. That's just. Uh... A lot of us are Soren Johnson. A lot. Of us are. <laughs> oh, Tom. <laughs> is she? Is she named after something? Maybe I guess. Or is Calendar Man really? Oh, jeez. All right. I'm. I'm just gonna. I'm gonna go with Sasha Gray. 
You know what? You're right. That is not. I, I buried it. I'm sorry, but come on. <laughs> I'm, I did not see that one coming. That's is fair Calendar enough. Man seriously a villain? Actually, Calendar yes. Man is a villain. Man. But here's the real ringer I threw in there. Uh, there is a, I forget what he's called, Croc or something, but there's a. Yeah, there's it's Croc. Right. Yeah, and he's a Batman villain, but. Killer Croc. The lizard. Thank you, McMaster. The lizard is, and I had to look this stuff up, Soren, because I'm kind of like you. I'm a pretender when it comes to dorkdom. I like to think. Uh, but the the lizard is a Spider-Man villain. Yeah. Okay. See, but, so tricky. So all right. So Soren Johnson, you still have one point. As long as you don't get any more of these wrong, we will accept you as one of us. Okay. Here we go. Which one of these is the most recent in terms of like when it started? In other words, which one of these series is the oldest? Uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Star Trek Voyager, or Star Trek Deep Space Nine? Which one's the oldest? Yep. Which one had the earliest start date? Yeah. Oh, Deep Space Nine. Ah, very good. Okay. You know what, yeah. Soren? This is a tense one because we're you're two on you're two to two. Dude. You've got two right, two wrong. Here comes the. Wait, Sasha Gray is a Batman yeah. villain? No, Sasha Gray is not a Batman villain. Well, he picked so, Batman. He picked Sasha Gray. Well, so no, no. Three the to tricky one. one that he missed was the Lizard. The lizard well, yeah, but that wasn't the question. You asked which one is not a Batman villain. I don't Correct. think Sasha Gray is a Batman villain unless he doesn't like sex with attractive women. So, <laughs> Master, the question I mean, was, I'm just throwing that out there. Right. So, Master, the question was, uh, one or more of these is not a Batman oh. villain. Oh, that's my bad. That's oh, what so I helped identify multiple. Yeah, yeah. Oh? Exactly. So there were multiples no in there. There were, there were two in there that were not Batman villains. Soren did get one of them, uh, but he didn't get the other one, so... Well, so what is wait, what is the what's the power of Calendar Man? Now I have to know. Well, but, but here's the deal: I had to look these up, so I don't know anything <laughs> beyond whatever the, the basics of Wikipedia. The power of Calendar Man. I don't know, McMaster. Can you help us with that? You, uh, you know, Calendar Man is one of those villains. Like, you know, I'll be honest. I, I'm a comic dude. I love comics, but I'm more of a black and white kind of like you would hear a. Uh, like an old record player playing in the background, some jazz kind of comics. Like <laughs> I like uh, I'm into all the like fancy indie comics. So I love Batman, and I'm familiar with all the major story arcs. But Calendar Man, I'm only really uh, familiar with from the games. So to be fair, uh, Arkham Asylum and um, Arkham City kind of clued me into that one. Yeah. Well, so. you know, I mean, there's there's different types of geeks, and the type I was growing up, my my room was not full of comics. My room was more likely to be full of SPI and Avalon Hill War Games. That was kind of. Yeah, I'm with you. I hear you. I'm a. I was like, my room was full of computer junk and strategy games. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what, Soren? Now that you've said that, that's a fair point. The last question was going to be, uh, I'm going to change it, but it was going to be, how much does the latest issue of X Men cost? I was going to ask you that, but Jesus. I'm going to change it. Now that's the thing is I. I meant to look up the answer for this because like I have no idea. <laughs> you mean like the newest, like the the newest copy? I, like I'm, yeah. just, I'm going to store. Aren't they like two ninety five now or something like that? Well, I I have no idea, and I, I it sounds like Soren doesn't either. I definitely, how, I definitely how, have no idea. But you know what? Since you've identified what kind of geek you are, I am going to change the final question, Soren Johnson, yeah. as the as the keeper of this quiz. Uh, here we go. Here is your final question to determine whether or not you're one of us. What does SPI stand for? Oh. Uh, I believe it stands for Strategic Publications Incorporated. Okay, hold on. Let me check. You were right. 
Wow. Oh! <laughs> you know, actually, the, the truth of that, Soren, is I have no idea, but the fact that you sounded pretty sure, I'm going to give you the point. You are hereby a card-carrying dork, according to uh, the Quarter to Three Games podcast quiz. Congratulations. Right. To be fair, though, uh, though I, I, I do want to give you the card. It's not that. <gasps> oh, oh no! What is here's the deal? It's Simulations Publications Incorporated. Oh, well, you know what? Yeah, here's that makes that makes more sense. Dude, since you owned some of them, I mean, that's all we need. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I don't think anyone even knows that that you know those letters at this point. No, no, no. no they so, don't. Soren, you get one half of a point for successfully outing Sasha Gray as not being a Spider-Man, <laughs> and you get another, and you get another half a point for getting two of the words in SPI correct. Right. So, so it's official. You're in. Okay. Squeaky. We were gonna grease the squeaky wheels anyway. <laughs> so, sorry, you don't watch any like dopey TV shows. Like you're not watching The River or just. Uh, yeah, I don't get. I don't have cable, so like right. um, I just watch whatever flows through on Netflix. So. Tom or uh, Soren, have you ever watched Archer? Um. You know what? It's a cartoon. I don't. Nobody watches it, but it's 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 pretty funny. H. John Benjamin and also uh, the lady that played Lucille Bluth from Arrested Development, Chris Parnell. Yeah, it's pretty good. Cool. All right. So we'll we'll take that under advisement, McMaster. Uh, (laughs) If I were to watch cartoons, I might watch that one. Uh, Soren and I just got back from GDC, uh, and what I'd like to do before we move into our format is talk a little bit about what we saw at GDC. Uh, now, Soren, you are a regular there. I'm kind of a tourist. I go every so often. Uh, would you, could you, I like, identify any larger trends this year? Did any, did any sort of trends stand out for you at GDC? Um, well, I mean... I mean, the trend. This trend has been going for quite a while, but I mean, everything has been moving towards, towards web, towards mobile, towards social, and you know, kind of away from away from your standard console games. Um, and it seemed like it was a lot less contentious this year than it was bef- than it has been in previous years. You know, in previous years, a lot of people were um, sort of fearful about their place in the industry, um, and. I didn't hear that as much this year. It seemed to be a much more optimistic year, you know, which was nice to see. Um, I mean, for for one thing, there's you know so many more avenues to um, getting the game done, um, uh, getting the game out there, whether it's through Steam or just you know selling itself directly through the App Store. You know, new funding options. Um, you know, the whole Kickstarter Kickstarter thing has been really <laughs> pretty crazy. Um, Intense, yeah. Yes. Um, <laughs> And it's been interesting because, I mean, to me, what that stuff, and well, I'm sure we'll probably talk about this later, but what that stuff kind of signifies is that um, there's, there's just a lot of pent-up demand for games which aren't being made right now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. And that's that's pretty interesting to see. Um, so I, I hope what we're entering into is a new phase where people sort of are accepting the plurality of the industry that... Um, there is so much going on right now, and there, these things are not at the ex- one thing is not at the expense of another. Right. You know, I think that's that's definitely. It uh, feels like we're yeah. It feels like we're finally uh, erecting a big tent, kind of. Right. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so uh, I, I like that. I, I definitely, uh, as again as a tourist, I, I get the sense for that, and it's so nice to to see like smaller guys up there, and with some of the bigger guys. Like one of the things I noticed. 
and I don't know if this is part of the political thing behind GDC, but you could not swing a dead cat without hitting someone from Naughty Dog giving a talk on <laughs> Uncharted 3. You know, there's like a talk on the smoke effects and the water technology and the particle system and, and Nathan Drake's hairstylist. And <laughs> I, I assume you scoffed at all of these, right? You, well, you walked I, by and I physically scoffed at them. <laughs> I, I have a lot of respect for the, the cinematic stuff in, in Uncharted 3, and I love yeah, no, uh, I agree. And I love the middle section of it, and I actually, if it wasn't such a like dorky programmer thing, I would have loved to have heard the guy who did the water effects in that, because they, they did some awesome water-based adventure stuff in Uncharted 3. Uh, and Amy Hennig, by the way, uh, for whom I just have an enormous amount of respect. I mean, I love listening to her talk. I love her as a, as a writer. Even when I take issue with the way her work is used in some of the games, she got up and did a little talk about, and I loved hearing this, what a huge influence um, it, some grandpa movie called Sullivan's Travels, which I've never seen. <laughs> oh, God. Famous, I know. It's a famous Preston Sturgis movie. Uh, but she, she talked about how, you know, what that meant to her and how it was an influence for, for her and, and how it kind of makes this meta statement that she could apply to the games industry about Hollywood. Uh, so I love hearing that kind of stuff. But, you know, Naughty Dog has such a presence at GDC, it makes me wonder... Well, what the heck? Why don't like EA games or Activision's games? Like, what? Why isn't? Why aren't some of these people there as well uh, in force um, like that? I'll tell you why. It's because, like, for instance, Naughty Dog, like, uh, what Uncharted Three, not the greatest game, but you know why? It's because it's compared to Uncharted Two, which is one of the greatest games, and like Uncharted Three, though it's not the greatest game, still has a soul. <laughs> which is missing from quite a bit of the other uh, publishers. Well, I suspect there is also, and Soren, maybe you could uh, address this a bit, I suspect some of the larger publishers are more reluctant than others to to maybe speak freely about proprietary stuff. I, I don't know. Uh, right. Well, it's always been, um, I mean, I'm on, I'm on the GDC board now, the advisory board, so I part, take part of the process of you know, deciding what talks get in and what talks don't get in. Um, and... Uh, it's, you know, we do the best we can to get a, a wide variety. For for example, uh, Naughty Dog has always been great about giving mm -hmm. talks. Like, they're awesome, and we love them for that. And so that's why you see all these Uncharted well, talks. Uh, I um, mean, I... I worked for the I worked for IGF like on and off, and I had to do a bunch of audio work for the last few GDCs. And there's a lot of Naughty Dog talks. Right. There's no doubt about yeah. that. They're very giving. Now, real yeah, quick, uh, before sorry to interrupt here, Sorden, but uh, is Naughty Dog owned by Sony or are they still independent? <laughs> yeah, it's That's almost one of those <laughs> strange relationships. I don't I don't know what the de details is. Like, okay, I know, think they're uh, technically dependent or independent there. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if they're one of those few groups that fall into the term like second party where they're like so closely related to a big publisher. I mean, they've never done anything that's non-Sony, right? Right. So I assume whatever contracts they sign with Sony have, you know, some really heavy benefits and maybe some language involved about staying connected with Sony. So, but you know, they, that's, that's between, you know, Naughty Dog's lawyers and Sony's. Well, just, just to verify real quick, I, this just in, uh, according to Wikipedia, they are a subsidiary. Oh, uh, uh, oh, okay. Huh. So at some point they were acquired. But anyway, hey, so Sword, you started to really? say, so so Naughty Dog uh, has always been present at GDC. It sounded right. like there was going to be a but about some of the other publishers. Yeah, um, but other publishers are sort of notoriously the opposite. Rockstar, for example. Right. 
Like we've oh, all yeah, yeah. Rockstar to talk and like Rockstar has never I mean I can't even think of a talk that they've given. Uh, I'm, there may, may be something somewhere, but um, but that's that's a big issue, right? Uh, and it's do not show up, want them. Do they show up even at E three? I mean I, I don't really remember a lot oh, of Bro- Rockstar. Rockstar is so happy to sit out at E threes that sort of Yeah, like I, I don't remember ever seeing them. So like they're kind of a company that just kinda of avoids everything it would seem. They have done E threes in the past, but it, the ones I remember were from six or seven years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a shame too, because one of the talks that I really enjoyed this year, and Valve has always been very open. I love that about them. But they let uh Chet Falisek, I can never say his last name, uh, and Eric Wolpog get up there and do a great postmortem on Portal 2. Uh, the perspective of it being, hey, Portal 1 was so awesome, it was this almost perfect self-contained little package, why on earth and how would we do a sequel? Uh, and they talked a bit about that. I loved hearing it. They're both just such personable, funny guys. Uh, and I had no idea about this. Portal 2 originally... Was uh, no did not include shell, did not include Glados, mm. and did not include portals. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> how does that even work? Yeah. Uh, well, that, how it works is it doesn't, and so they changed. You know, after was developing it, it uh, along these lines for a while, they eventually realized, uh, no, <laughs> we need shell. Was it just need- like Stephen Merchant, just <laughs> chilling out for a while. <laughs> well, no, they, they actually played it a little close to the vest for what it was going to be because it sounds like they had some cool ideas that they might reserve for a later title. Yeah. Uh, but they had a whole different dynamic that wasn't portals that they were going to build the game uh, around. Yeah, the, the Cave Johnson stuff was orig- involved in the like original concept. Um, right. Although I think maybe it changed era a little bit. And they had they had this whole 80s science concept going. And I mean, it's just, it's just bizarre. I mean, you can really tie yourself in knots if you're in a big franchise about what goes in and what goes out. Yeah. And sure, like, the, yeah. the very concept of not having portals in Portal 2 just seems yeah, that's bizarre. That's ludicrous, but, yeah, yeah. But, that doesn't make any sense at all. And and I would love to hear Rockstar talk like this. I mean, I would love to hear you know one of the Housers get up there and do the, this kind of introspective postmortem. That would just be so illuminating, but yeah. yeah. Uh, Soren, any talks in particular stand out for you? Um, talks that really jumped out to me were, uh, the best talk of the year I thought was, uh, George fans. Uh, ah, you jerk. Quit say- <laughs> <laughs> I stole that from you. I mean, everyone who saw that basically said that was the best talk. Of- well, you didn't steal it. You, you actually didn't steal it from me. I think I mentioned this to you in our panel. Oh, I, the, the, yeah, the one morning I decided oh. I, I'm really tired. I think I'm going to sleep in. Uh, there's a plants versus zombies talk. I'm sure that's no big deal. I'll just skip that one. <laughs> So tell us tell us again. I'm sorry because I I, uh, I I talked over you. What was your talk and what made it good? Uh, well, it was a talk about tutorials, basically, like how he taught the game. Um, and uh, and first of all, you you actually can see it if you want to. Like uh, Tom's a speaker, so you'll have access to the vault. So uh, hopefully yeah. hopefully they'll publish it for everyone because um, it was just a really great talk. Uh, you know, he just went through all these just like tiny little details step by step of you know little things like how do you teach people to use sunflowers right um because that's not necessarily a natural concept and so like if you notice um you, when you play them out the sun that's why the sunflower costs fifty dollars and the you know most of the other stuff costs more is that it's the first item available for purchase right and even when there were other items that were fifty dollars um like uh 
uh, what's a good example? Like the potato, the potato mine. Mm-hmm. Um, he would actually start the potato mine on cooldown at the beginning of the level. Ah, sort of directing sure. people, hey, buy this, yeah. right? Exactly, and it's just like this, like this tiny little thing. But you know, it, you know, these things just kind of all, like all add up, and so, you know, it's a lecture full of those like little, little concepts. And he, also, he's just got a good, a good talking style. I know he was, he was hesitant to talk at GC, like, um, and like, so we had to really kind of encourage him. But I'm so glad we did. He just did a wonderful job. Good for you guys, because I, yeah, I love, I love hearing that kind of stuff, and I, I look forward to eventually getting to watch this. But I, I love that's one of the things I love about GDC is hearing a little detail like, hey, when the game starts, this is on its cooldown timer already, and what a huge difference that makes. Uh, and that that reminds me, Soren, of one of my favorite talks, which I alluded to briefly a moment ago, uh, a fellow named Luke Muscat from Half Brick. Sure. Uh, and he he talked a lot about you know Jetpack Joyride and how this was just going to be a little I think he maybe said four or eight week project or something uh, and how they just had a great prototype and it was awesome but then they were wanting to you know what his story actually sounded like what for a lot of game developers would be uh, feature creep they had a very simple game they wanted to make but as they started folding more features into it it drew out the uh, the development uh, timeline uh, and. If you were to just sort of look, get an overview of how this developed and how features were added in, you would think, oh, this would be a mess. They were adding all this stuff. It went over schedule. Um, But on the contrary, they were just so smart about what to add, how much time to give the new features, uh, even things like the name. Jetpack Joyride, up until almost literally the eve of its release was called Machine Gun Jetpack. (laughs) (laughs) Which is, uh, yeah, pretty accurate, actually. Uh, I don't know if enough people notice that, but you are riding on a machine gun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of their their reservations about that was that if you only have a little bit of room to look at the name of a game, it cuts off after a machine gun. So you're looking at, you know, it's kind of burying the lead in a way if you've only got limited space. And also it, it sounds like, you know, when you when you open with the word machine gun, you think of like a Call of Duty type game. Right. It, it really doesn't convey the spirit of the game. So the fact that they agonized over that and then hit on something so perfect. I mean, the, the word jetpack is first. The word joyride definitely captures the spirit of it. Uh, sure. it's, how, it's how it opens. Uh, it's just a beautiful little touch, and they, they kind of stumbled across this at the last minute, but it's so valuable. Uh, so I loved, hearing, I loved hearing Luke talk about this, this, this game that, for all intents and purposes, looks like a little simple time waster, but just has so much smarts uh, right. in the design. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was there was a really interesting lesson in that talk that I would have never figured out if I hadn't seen him talk the way through it. Um, and the thing I think is most interesting about the game is the mission system. Yes. Um, because it is it's it what gives the game its variety, right? You want to keep playing it because it keeps asking you to do to play the game in these weird different ways. Um, it's kind of like a you know actually useful version of achievements, right? Where you know you're constantly being you know asked to you know okay this time do it, but try to not get any coins, right? Or you know uh, spend the spend the game on the ceiling as much as you can, right? Or or whatever. And so that you know that gives you a re- you know that gives you reason to keep playing playing because it is it is a short game, so it's going to get repetitive. But the thing I think that was most interesting, I wouldn't have thought of this myself, was they were very concerned about the um, tension level of the game that, um, I mean, this is essentially a cannibal-like game, right? It's a runner, and yeah. you're not meant to go forever, right? Like, so the, the thing is, those games tend to get really, really tense, 
right? And they're just sort of like the tension just sort of keeps going up. So apparently, like early on, I think they had a life system um, where you know you had maybe like three lives or something like that, and um, and in that case, it was it was because they they thought the lives would help balance out the tension, but instead, it just got every time you lost a life, you just <laughs> You just felt more and more pressure, right? Um, whereas, and then I think they tried something else that was much more forgiving, that you could go really a long, long way. And They, had a, the they had a Call of Duty system where you, you're, yes, you would gradually right. get your health back, yeah. That's right, exactly. And then it was just like, well, now there's no tension, right? Like, it's just, you know, you have the small blips, but, you know, like, we're just, they're just able to go too far. Like, the game's lost its, you know, sweet spot where, you know, each run is like 60 to 90 seconds, right? Um and so what they did to solve that was the vehicle system, right, where you get the little stomper and you get the uh, Mr. Cuddles and the Prophet Bird. And you basically you get these little uh, special vehicles that give you, you know, give you special powers. But the really great thing about that is it's essentially you've picked up the vehicle is fun, but what you've picked up is also invulnerability. An right? extra life, basically. Yeah, yeah, that's a, better, that's a better way to put it, right? Like, you're now doing this fun thing. And the tension has suddenly dropped out because you know, like you're gonna have fun with it for, for however long it lasts. But at some point, you'll, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna hit one of the missiles or one of the zappers, and and then you'll just be back to being your regular self, right? And the that's that gave the game an actual variable flow because it wasn't constantly getting more and more pressure, and you know the the game would still end at some point, but you got these these different phases where you sometimes you were feeling tense and sometimes you weren't. Um, you know, and that's that's really important to like vary the emotional uh, feel of a game, you know, as it goes through. So, and, and it's interesting too. I think Luke said that the vehicles were part of an earlier uh, system they had. They they wanted occasionally to maybe mix up the controls, but at first that was confusing and it kind of broke the simplicity of the game. So right. that's what the vehicles end up doing. Is each right. vehicle isn't is in addition to being an extra life, it's a it's a funky new control system. Right, uh, yep, yep. So, so they managed to go back to this older feature they had and fold it in to help vary the tension level. Yeah, th- th- Luke was like such a great speaker, and those guys at Half Brick uh, just seem just whip smart to me. You yeah. know what, Soren? It makes me want to play uh, that Fruit Ninja thing, which I <laughs> never had any desire to play. I always thought, oh, it's some dippy casual thing. But after sure. hearing Luke talk, I was like, wow, I, I want to see what else they've done. Sure, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Fruit Fru Ninja is pretty good, um, but uh, I mean, I think this is a—it's the mobile mobile games are going through a transition because, like, to me, when you said like we were going to make this game in four weeks, like it was kind of a laughable statement, right? Like, right. the the market is changing, right? Like they they know what they're doing now, and it's it. To- I mean, you can only do so much in a month, right? Like, you know, unless unless they're going for a model where they're just okay, we're just going to throw up something and. You know, get feedback on it right away. That's the reason why we're doing it. You know, right. if, if instead they they feel like you know they can actually you know s- learn something and design something well internally, like yeah, it's it's gonna t- it takes time to make games. You know, like nine months is not something to to worry about. Yeah. Um, uh, one of the talks, I think maybe my. F- uh... I don't know about my favorite talk, but the one that was the most memorable for me um, was a woman named Mona Moore. Mm-hmm. who is this kind of like crazy German chick who was a punk rocker in Berlin in the 80s. She put up like pictures of herself and she played some of her music. Uh, and now she has this kind of uh, almost like severe school teacher look uh, that uh, it, it was 
anyway, she, she's, a, she's a very striking woman. She doesn't look like mm-hmm. a game developer. She has a very non-game developer background. But IO Interactive hired her to do the, and I'm making air quotes here, music for Kane and Lynch 2, which doesn't really have music so much as this kind of industrial sound design behind the action. Uh, And Mona Moore has a background with this kind of like industrial noise, audio assault, kind of art as pain school of thought. (laughs) I'm not Uh, surprised that she's German. (laughs) It's so very German. I mean, listening to her talk, it was almost like, what if... Werner Herzog were a hot school marm. You know, what would he sound like? Uh, so she was just so engaging, and she was such not a game developer in right. terms of, like, how she talked about what she did. Uh, so, and I, I, it just made me reappreciate Kane and Lynch, too, which I think is a really sadly underrated shooter. I would call Kane and Lynch, too, fr- from an aesthetic perspective, one of the most brilliant shooters in the past 10 years. Uh, those guys just did something different. It's weird. I think it didn't work for a lot of people, but I really respect how unique and bold that game is. And it was right. fascinating listening to Mona Muir talk about uh, her approach to the sound design. Yeah, uh, well, we did. We definitely need more of that. I mean, it's, yes. it's great when we reach out way outside the games industry because for so many things aesthetically, we have just kind of these same touch tones we go back to, to over and over again, especially with music. I mean, there's, it's always the same, you know, quarrel, you know, <laughs> Lord of the Rings type knockoff music, you know, and it just, you know. Like, are you guys, I'm sorry, go ahead, Soren. Well, there's just such a wide variety you could have, right? And all you have to do is do something different and it really stands out to people, right? Like, that's that's where... There, there's a lot to gain there. So Electronic Arts hired uh, for Mass Effect 3. They hired a film composer named Clint Mansell. Uh, Is that who, the guy who did the Moon soundtrack? Yep, he did Moon. Yeah. He did Requiem. Yeah, that's a great Dream. soundtrack. Yep, he Moon's did, really uh, good, yeah. yeah. He did The Fountain. And the thing is, as I'm playing through Mass Effect 3, I hear all of those soundtracks. <laughs> like, he's kind yeah. of, like, I, I respect the guy, and I'm sure that, you know, he actually worked on this, but I just kind of hear these recycled bits of other soundtracks that he's done. Uh, right. And that's fine. You know what? If I'm going to listen to music during a game, I just assume listen to stuff that I like. Uh, right. But, yeah, I, I wish more developers would take chances rather than doing safe things like, hey, let's throw money at Hans Zimmer or Clint Mansell. And hire people like Mona Moore. Uh, right, right. Uh, all right, so Soren, we did a panel. Uh, mm-hmm. How do you feel that went? Um, I thought it went pretty well. Um, there, there were some sparks, kind of. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the uh, panels have kind of gone down over the recent year, number of years at GDC, um, generally because they kind of get a, they kind of get a bad rap. Um, generally, the issue with panels is, you know, you get a bunch of people who kind of generally agree. On some topic, <laughs> and it can it tends to be pretty milk toast, you know. It's just like not that interesting, you know. Or you get people who are afraid to say what they really they really they really mean to say, or they, what they'd really like to say. Mm-hmm. You know, there was a kind of a you know infamous middleware panel in the AI summit where, um, you know, everyone was up there and they could have really dished dirt on each other, but you know, everyone was basically <laughs> afraid to say anything, right? And uh, um, they you know that unfortunately that just happens a lot. So. Uh, so yeah, so this panel, I wanted to find people who are really on completely opposite sides of the issue, um, and so it, it was funny that we are actually arranged ourselves geographically that way. Um, <laughs> it was kind of like a, a house of, of parliament with uh, the right on the right and the left on the left. Yeah. Yeah. So our, our subject was uh, free to play and how that in, impacts the design process, um, and it seemed like the the 
the really dynamic speakers. I mean, we had Ben Cousins, who has worked at EA and is now at MG Moco. Uh, very suave, very uh, sort of diplomatically spoken. Soren, you, uh, you were your normal analytical self, very professorial. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Matt Vorch, who now is Matt at LucasArts now, or, or has does he, he is he is at LucasArts now? Yeah. Okay, so Probably Matt Vorch, uh, yeah, formerly of EA, much more of a conventional, uh, you know, AAA boxed product developer uh, on one hand, and then a fellow named David Eddery, who, uh, is it Spry Fox? Is that where he's mm-hmm. from? Yeah, yeah. Spry Fox, they're the realm of the mad gods, Triple Town. Uh, those guys both, I mean, not not rude to each other, but both very willing to sort of emphatically disagree, which I right. really liked to hear. That uh, was a great perspective. And, you know, David had some great points about you know what free to play does and how it can open up the the market for other people and uh and and Matt had some great reservations about how that taps into you know right. people not having good impulse control and how it right. removes the the game progression from the self-contained part of the game uh so I really yeah. liked hearing both of those speak those guys were great yeah it was very interesting to say hear Matt say you know it's my job as a game designer to give players what they need and not what they want exactly um, yes that's yes. A, that's a a perspective you don't often hear, you know, in the games industry. Um, and uh, I mean, I can I can relate to that. I mean, I think free to play free to play is very important. You know, I think it's it's going to transform the industry. But I think I think a lot of people don't appreciate that. What it really just does is it makes a game designer's job much harder. Right, like that's that's ultimately what happens. Um, and and as a player, I mean, I don't have the insight that you guys do, but as a player, I hate what free to play does to the product that I get. I mean, I hate seeing business models so baldly part of the design process. It just right. it drives me bonkers. Uh, yeah. But I do understand the benefit. I do understand that uh, it's a huge boon to game developers. Um, so yeah. yeah. And, uh, and I, I mean, I, I mean, I, it's a. Uh, Sort of a tough thing to say, but like because I think I think some people starting are starting to forget this, but people need to remember this is what happened because of piracy, right? Like if we had not had a major piracy problem, we you know like we wouldn't have necessarily gone down the the free to play path. My, my inclination, Soren, at that is to just bristle, but I have to concede that you're probably right. Uh, but yeah, yeah, fair enough. I mean. I, it's it's you know sort of it's a tragedy of the commons thing right and um, I mean this is how it all start it all started in Korea a place where like piracy was just a given right there was just there was no way to hold it back and that's you know that's where they really started experimenting with this concept of you know we can't force people to buy the stuff so we're just gonna have to give it away for free and find a different way to to charge for it um, and. I mean, I I think the it, you know that that aspect of it I think is is too bad. You know, I mean, it's it's everything is when you make your when you make the game designer's job harder. I mean, that's that's not that's not really a great thing, right? I mean, it's it's hard enough as it is, um, and so it's a trade off. And that you know, like one thing I'll tell you know independent developers, you know, small guys is like you have it's actually an advantage that you are just making a product that you can sell once. Right, you need to take advantage of the fact that you don't have to worry about all this stuff. Right, right. Um, you can you can do some things that you know the bigger publishers are not going to, um, you know, are not as flexible with, and that, that includes also you know games that have you know long DLC plans and um, you know they're just sort of you know looking for all sorts of different ways to to you know make make extra money off of off of the game um, yeah. because 
something that's a problem. Uh, Soren, if I was like running a blog that, that thrived on taking quotes out of context to get hits, mm-hmm. my, my headline for your uh, comments you just made would be, Soren Johnson blames Asia. <laughs> okay. So I'm, I, that might be on the front page of quarter three. I'm just warning you. <laughs> uh, let's get into our, our format for the week. McMaster, what's the format going to be for the rest of this podcast? A little song, a little dance. Um, first, uh, news, and then second, games of the week. All right. Let's uh, let's go to the, uh, the non-participant for our dork quiz, Jason S. McMaster. What is your choice for news of the week? My choice for the news of the week is the Kickstarter craze. That gummit. Oh, specifically the yeah. Your World Project. <laughs> How could I resist cur- curveball? It was a curveball. Yeah, the what project, McMaster? What's going Your on here? World. Tell See, us there's about this. There's this guy in Baltimore named Elwood Bartlett, and he oh, is won. This the yes. Oh, he, won, yes. Uh, he won the lottery, mm-hmm. but he has put up a Kickstarter page to make an MMO. And he's asking for $1.1 million. But what he's promising in this MMO is quite interesting. (laughs) He's promising uh, basically the most awesome game ever delivered for (laughs) $1.1 million. (laughs) What what could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, like, uh, he has, like, a whole lot of pledge tiers, and they're all pretty hilarious overall. Uh, And... Really, if you want to play a fun game or like a drinking game that gets you smashed, you should go through this Kickstarter page for your world and look for misspellings (laughs) and drink each time. I didn't know currency had an A in it. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorites is uh, if you pledge $10,000 or more, you get 500,000 gold in currency with an A. (laughs) If you pledge $10,000 or more, you get... One million gold and currency with an extra E and an A. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. McMaster, how much did you pledge? <laughs> uh, I have not pledged anything, though. I will say that my friend David Hickox did pledge $3, uh, and he did give a reason of, fuck it. Uh, he also gave a reason for maybe if we all pledge one dollar, we can all join in in one of the largest class action suits ever waged <laughs> against Kickstarter. <laughs> once the game does not deliver. Now, wait. Uh, what did, did you mention? What is this up to yet? Like, how much has this guy made? Do we know? Oh, I'm sorry. Two hundred ninety-seven dollars. <laughs> Two hundred ninety-nine dollars. I'm looking at the page right now. What? This yeah. is kind of pull fast shit on me here what's going oh my god somebody else uh, oh. well it's funny it's like idle thumbs uh, i think donated like 10 grand and then they withdrew their pledge <laughs> that's just mean that is pretty mean <laughs> well to briefly piggyback on your news of the week mcmaster my news of the week was uh and you know what maybe i'm scooping soren johnson we'll find out my news of the week was a successful kickstarter program for wasteland oh. 2 from uh, Brian Fargo, and as I mentioned, Wasteland was a game that, uh, good lord, I loved that game. Did it predated Fallout, right? Yeah, totally. Right. Yes. Uh, it was, yeah. And as I mentioned, one of the first games I ever finished. Uh, that was that was a that was a big deal for me as a kid. I loved Wasteland. Uh, now, if you had asked me, 
hey, Tom, if, if Brian Fargo did a Wasteland 2 Kickstarter, would anything come of that? I would have thought, no, nah, that's too old. He doesn't have the sort of cult of personality that Tim Schafer has. There's not the amount of affection for Wasteland that, that Double Fine has for their games. A Wasteland 2 Kickstarter is never going to go anywhere. And that just goes to show how you should never trust me in any discussion of the video game business because in the first 24 hours, they hit 600, they, they hit over half a million dollars. He basically wants 900,000. We'll just round it off to a million. Brian Fargo basically wants a million dollars for this. He's well on his way in the first 24 hours. Yeah, so, he's at 775 right now. Awesome, awesome. So I am elated to announce that when it comes to Kickstarter, never, ever, ever listen to me. <laughs> uh, yes. uh, so that, that's my news of the week. Soren, did I scoop you? Did you have a Kickstarter? Uh, you, you did scoop me, but let me let me pair this with one other news story of the week that I think fits, perhaps sadly, alongside the Wasteland 2 one, which is the layoffs at Obsidian. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Right? So tell us about that. What's going on there? Okay. So I don't I don't really know why there were layoffs. I mean, Obsidian Obsidian's uh, Obsidian is essentially the remnants of Black Isle. You know, which is a company that made, um, well, frankly, a lot of great games. You know, they were yeah. involved with Baldur's Gate and Icewind Dale and Planescape Torment, and uh, these were the also and well, just Gold Fallout One and Fallout Two, right? Um, and um, a lot of these people um, trace their lineage all the way back to Brian Fargo and Wasteland, and um, there's kind of like this, you know, tree of developers uh, down there. And Obsidian is. Um, essentially the, the one kind of big functioning company that's still um, left in that area, basically, like at least, at least the, the larger one. I mean, Brian Fargo has been running in exile for, in exile for a while, um, but Obsidian is kind of the one that, that's still making, you know, basically AAA games and, and so on and so forth. And um, they've had, they've had some successes and some failures, you know, um, and, you know, or they'll have sort of a mix. You know, the, a, a typical project for them is Fallout 3, which or uh, New Vegas. You know, a game that has fantastic writing but is sort of plagued with bugs, right? right. Um, so, at any rate, it's it's interesting to see that you know the same week that Brian Fargo is able to um, you know have you know the start of a very successful uh, Kickstarter campaign shows Obsidian having to lay off their workforce because they're not able to match their they haven't so far been able to match their talent with the right audience per se, or the right business model, or, you know, I mean, it's, 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 you know, just kind of an interesting contrast, right? You know, uh, 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 Soren, I would also add, you, you say part of the problem is maybe they can't match their talent to the right business model or audience. It's almost like, like I get a sense they can't quite match their talent to the right, game design in a sense because uh like that that dungeon siege game that they did which right. was an action rpg just seemed to me a tremendous waste of what they're really good at sure. namely alpha protocol you know this really streamlined game mechanics oriented choice and consequence game design like i thought alpha protocol they did a fantastic job with that and right. that did seem to have a problem finding an audience uh and then they tried to to plug that into new vegas and i i think maybe got buried under the complexity of the design uh josh sawyer who was i think the lead designer on that gave another great talk at gdc about how to architect this this choice and consequence system in, in a game. And he spoke very frankly about some of the limitations uh, with with the way Fallout New Vegas worked. 
and mm-hmm. some of the pitfalls that they ran into and weren't really able to solve. Um, right. So I think that's part of the problem with Obsidian too is you know matching what's the, what's the right design for the things that they're really good at doing. Um, right. Yeah. So that is sad to hear. Uh, how many were laid off? Do we know? Something like about thirty. I mean, I'm not really, I'm right. not really sure, like you know, how big the studio is and how many projects they have going on right now. Right. Um, but uh, is I mean, they, there? They, they have some great talent there. You know, it's always yeah. been kind of like, you know, how can? And it, it was, it was sad to see. Like, it's always interesting to hear your perspective on Alpha Protocol. I haven't, I haven't played it personally yet. Um, but I mean, I know a lot of people were kind of disappointed in it. But yeah. really, there was. There were some interesting concepts in that game. Um, Absolutely, and and there were some that didn't work, and I completely understand uh, it not working for lots of people. Uh, yeah, so I, I still listening to Josh's talk. Like I never got through Fallout New Vegas simply because it it basically locked up on me. I mean, I, I hit this awful technical dead end that killed my game after like thirty hours, and I, God, I just have such a bad taste in my mouth from that. So listening to him talk about the the stuff that they tried to do and that, that they actually did in New Vegas, kind of just I just sat there kind of almost fuming <laughs> because I never got to see it. But it really made me want to go back and play Alpha Protocol. Even playing Mass Effect 3, which I'm guessing we're going to talk about in a little bit, uh, you know, a lot of choice and consequence stuff there. And Bioware, that's their bread and butter. But, right. man, I feel like I, I wish everyone at Bioware would play Alpha Protocol and, and learn from it because <laughs> there's, right, right. there's so much that they get right in, in that as far as that kind of design. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk, about, let's talk about Wasteland for a second because I, yes. I, I share Tom's feelings. I was actually surprised at how, like, even even in the quarter to three Fred thread <laughs> where they first talked about this, they're – it was kind of a lukewarm response to the yeah. to the, which kind of surprised me. Um, I mean, I mean, Wasteland is probably at this point. Wasteland is most known for having you know kind of directly inspired Fallout, right? right? Oh, I, yeah. I would I would say, um, and it's certainly remembered as a as a very good game. But I mean, you know, back then it sold, you know, it was a hit, but that meant a hundred thousand copies, right? I mean, right. you know, it's not it's not quite. Sort of seventy seas of gold or mule agent, but it's it's pretty it's a pretty old game, you know. And um, uh, beyond that, I mean, I never I never played the Bard's Tale, you know, sort of redo that they did. But mm-hmm. I mean, it didn't that didn't necessarily seem to be like really hitting the mark in terms of what probably people were looking for in a Bard's Tale, you know, remake. So um, yeah, it's just been interesting to see if people people are so ready. You kind of wonder, you know, what else is possible. Right. Well, I, I think I, I, in a way, like I'm glad it's happening, and I look forward to seeing what comes of it. But I do think looking at In Exile's track record recently mm. isn't really like that's where I would have reservations. Uh, I think they did that Hunted game, which was just like an, if I'm not mistaken, like an action RPG kind of console action game. I, I don't know. I actually didn't play it, but. Uh, the problem is I don't think they've got a recent game design track record to right. lead to enthusiasm. Right. Uh, that's, I'm trying to be polite. <laughs> yeah. and, I hope, and I hope they can change that. I mean, but, the, you know, it's been a long time since Wasteland was awesome, and the industry has changed so much. Right. Uh, so I'm glad to see they're getting support for trying something new. But, yeah, I kind of am a little lukewarm about the actual product that will come out of it. In, right. in theory, I love that this is happening. In practice, uh, I'm certain I have my reservations. Yeah. Yeah, and it'll be interesting because I mean, a, a million, and they'll probably clear a million dollars easily. They, yeah. They'll, they'll probably even, you know, start to approach maybe two million by. I mean, there's still a whole month to go, but um, it'll be interesting to see how the development goes because, 
a million dollars goes fast, right? Like a million dollars, that's probably, you know, you know, it's roughly 10 man years of work. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if, um, if, uh, uh, you know, if they work on it, they're saying they're going to work on it for basically a year and a half. So that means that's like six or seven people then. Right. I mean, they, of course they could look for money elsewhere. They probably should. It doesn't need to be, you know, solely this, which is kind of one of the nice things about Kickstarter. It can just be an essentially an auxiliary source of funding. Right. But it'll be interesting to see if they kind of go down the typical path and like, okay, we're going to make a 3d game or if they start thinking really radical, like, Hey, let's, let's forget about 2d. Let's, uh, let's forget about 3d. Let's make this awesome sprite based 2d game really feels like there's a wasteland. Let's, let's make it for the iPad or something, you know, like let's, let's put it in a, in a format where people are going to be more forgiving of the fact that we're trying, we're trying not to push, push the technology. We're trying to push the design, you know, push the design, get the story back, you know, to do something really, really different as opposed to trying to make a game that's going to, some people are going to look at and they're going to compare to Mass Effect or the yeah. new XCOM game or, or whatever. And probably they're going to have a hard time with that comparison. And I, I think the fact that they are using the Wasteland name, I mean, it, it's appealing to guys like me who knew that it was, you know, a very rudimentary, graphically oriented, party-based RPG. And, and, you know, the, the kind of people who want to play a Wasteland 2, I don't, I hope they realize, aren't going to be looking for a Mass Effect. You know, we just want a little bit of that nostalgia. We want a cool RPG in an apocalyptic setting. doesn't have to be a Fallout. Yeah. So, uh, and oh, yeah, I would love for something. Have they, have they announced a platform? Uh, no, they have said okay. directly that it's it's going to be turn based. It's going to be team based. It's going to you know have you know a bunch of the. It's it's interesting to compare right to XCOM right because that that was a game that clearly you know clearly take two thought they knew better than the fans right <laughs> like they they thought like look I know you you guys think you know this you this small group of people because you know it's. When you're when your game is you know we're all fumbling in the dark here, right? Like we're all guessing at, at what's out there. And I think in you know an executive mindset, it's just so easy to like shove off, you know, uh, the people who played XCOM back in the right. '90s, you know, off into some corner. Like this is this is an irrelevant group. But look at this. If if you know in what two or three days, you know, they've already raised three quarters of a million dollars for Wasteland. What could they have raised for XCOM? <laughs> Could you imagine? Like, oh, you're you're breaking my heart, Soren. <laughs> yeah, and and I mean, obviously, Take Two would never use Kickstarter, right? Like, we're about to actually enter this phase where it's going to be very interesting to think about who has what IP, right? And what IP is just floating around, waiting for someone to take care of this. Like, I didn't necessarily know that Fargo had access to the Wasteland IP, yeah. right? Like, I, I don't know what the story is behind that, but um, like this this shows that like clearly. Take two just completely misjudged the market, right? That people, and I, I think this is this is a bigger lesson for uh, you know the games industry as well. Um, that you know I've heard some people talking about at GDC that like it's 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 really okay now to target a very specific market, mm -hmm. right? You know, like there are people really passionate about a lot of specific games that aren't being made, you know, and uh, you know companies like Stardock and Paradox have have thrived for a long time, you know, serving these people that other people, you know, the you know, bigger publishers just don't don't care about. Um, but there are a ton of different types of games that, that are not being made and, you know, are basically, at this point, you know, successful Kickstarter projects just waiting to happen. Yeah. Right? 
in in the maybe 20 years I've been writing about video games, I mean, I, I just constantly am surprised at how I can look at the industry and think, good Lord, this is a very exciting time. <laughs> uh, and I certainly feel that way now. It, it's really fascinating watching uh, all these business models emerge and evolve. And uh, even when I take issue with some of them, like free-to-play, uh, it's just a lot of good news all around. And you know what? It it, it taps into what you were talking about, Soren, about GDC this year being very optimistic. I mean, it's yep. got to be encouraging for a lot of people. So, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's, there's really not many excuses left. Like, it's hard to... It's hard to understand, like how you could you could. I mean, I remember six or seven years ago, you know, the very beginnings of sort of uh, the the indie summit. You know, there was a lot of grousing about like, you know, what we have all this pent up energy. We 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 have this all this desire to make these great games, but how are we going to do it? And like, I mean, nowadays there's nothing to complain about, right? Yeah. You just got to sit down and make a good game. Yep, exactly. Let's talk about some of those good games. Maybe good games, although uh, for when you choose your game of the week, it doesn't have to be a good game. Uh, let's see what we've come up with. McMaster, who is going to go first for this week's game of the week? Well, um, we'll say Tom. Why don't you go first? All right. You've called me out. Uh, I can do this one fairly quickly. I don't know if either of you are playing these, but I have turned into the biggest electronics arts fanboy recently. And not because of the game. I already picked Mass Effect 3, I think, the last time we recorded. But my game of the week this week is another EA game that just came out that I was so unimpressed by when I saw it at a press event. I knew it was coming out. I was like, yeah, I don't really care. Maybe I'll give it a shot. But I'm totally sucked in by SSX. They're, oh, they're, really? they're rebooted awesome. snowboard. And it's not even doesn't even have a subtitle. It's just straight up SSX. Um, and what I love about it, first of all, uh, the whole idea of snowboarding. Uh, I don't do any skiing or sports or skateboarding or whatever, but I do love like the skateboarding games. Uh, for how they have this kind of long, gentle learning curve, and you can make them as challenging as you want. Uh, but what happens with those games is I hit a plateau where my, my thumbs have gotten me as far as they're going to get me, and the level design doesn't really do much because you can only get so spectacular with like a city skateboard park environment. Uh, but SSX is so immediately spectacular with these beautiful alpine levels that they've put together, and there are different places around the world, and they've done a great job giving them geographic flavor so just as a game to get into just sliding down a cool mountain on a snowboard is just so welcoming it's immediately accessible but what they then do and i think they're doing this better than any of the other ssx games is they give you so many different ways to play without putting any value judgment on how you want to play so to explain briefly, if you play SSX, you can either do their world tour, which is a bunch of uh, little self-contained challenges. If you fail, you try again. You fail, you try again. You fail, you try again. Oh, look, you failed three times. You can skip it. You know, they're that forgiving mm. with it. Alternatively, if you just want to get out there and play around and explore every single uh, they're called drops, which is kind of like a course, because a helicopter drops you at the top of the mountain. So instead of calling it a track or a course or a level, it's called a drop. So if you just want to get in there and explore the different drops, every single one of them is unlocked in this uh, exploration mode. And there are medals you can get. You know, you don't need to get them, uh, but if you want to beat certain times or scores, uh, you can go for that. On any single drop, they're all there in exploration mode. And then they do this thing called RiderNet. Now, Electronic Arts loves to give dopey names to what's basically high score lists. If it's a driving game, it's called Autolog. Here it's called RiderNet. 
these are ridiculous, but what it comes down to is they're basically farming your friends list for mm. stats that you can go up against. It's not always high scores. Sometimes it's times. Sometimes it's, uh, uh, it's just a matter of, hey, this guy finished this level. But they're really wrapping this kind of social networking stuff, which a lot of times they, feels really forced. Mm-hmm. Here, they're really making it its own mode. If I just wanted to log on and see what you've been doing in the game, Soren, if you're playing SSX, I can do that, and then I can kind of try to match you. And if I want to beat your times, it automatically drops a little ghost of Soren Johnson's run down a certain drop, and I can race against that. Uh, it's just a really canny, seamless way of building this kind of high, social high-scoring system into right. SSX. Yeah. Uh, there's a great uh, RPG system with loot, even, and characters that level up. Uh, and, I, you know, it, it sounds like, oh, that uh, normally I would think, well, that's kind of mercenary of them to put that in there. Sounds just like something EA would do. But you know what? It works. They're, they're little minor things. It's not a big deal. Uh, it's more meaningful than I just, you know, just changing the pattern on my snowboard. You know, a new snowboard has stats as well as a cool pattern. So this loot chasing, they're so generous, by the way, with giving you different ways to make money. They're constantly dropping change in your pocket. Uh, it's this kind of Monty Hall thing. Uh, and then any given drop, you're either trying to get to the bottom as fast as you can, you're trying to get a trick score, or you're just trying to survive. So anytime you play, it's very simply one of those goals. Um, each goal has a unique rewind mechanic uh, where you can back up time. For instance, if you're trying to just survive, you have a limited number of rewinds. However, if you're doing a race where you want to get to the bottom in a set amount of time, rewinding, time keeps going forward as you rewind yourself. So you can rewind unlimited an unlimited amount, but the time is still running on. It's basically a time penalty. So rather than something like Forza, where they just throw in this rewind mechanic and you can use it or not, and I feel like it kind of breaks the game in a way, they build that into the game design in SSX. Uh, so against all odds, my, my game of the week, I'm just really digging it, is uh, SSX. So oh, All right. Cool. Which one? Which one of you is playing so that I can beat your times? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm not playing, but it's nice. I mean, social leaderboard leaderboards, social <laughs> leaderboards work. I mean, that's 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 proven, and like it's yeah. nice to hear that they're starting to expand that concept a little bit. Um, I mean, to have essentially multiple multiple uh, uh, boards, right? Just for for you know different different values and different measurements exactly yeah, yeah. Uh, so uh, by the way i'm going to make an iphone game and soren you've just helped me hit on the name it's going to be called leaderbirds <laughs> leaderbirds <laughs> yeah it's a good name uh, mcmaster you strike me as the kind of guy who might play in ssx oh uh, yeah i probably would if i if i had it yeah all right uh Right. So if, if you do, McMaster, I look forward to beating you. Uh, so actually, uh-huh. my, my current every, most of the people on my friends list who are playing SSX are really good, and it's very daunting. Uh, the one guy who's on my friends list who I consider within striking distance, so he's currently my arch nemesis, my rival, is Brandon Kakowski-Schnell. Uh, he, writes, he writes over at No High Scores. Uh, mm-hmm. Whenever I play, he's constantly like right next to me as far as performance. So m- when I sit down to play SSX, it's to beat one of Brandon's scores. <laughs> like that guy is, I think we're at the same skill level. So Brandon, if you're listening, I'm singling you out. I'm I'm gunning for you, buddy. Uh, so there you go. All right, McMaster, who is next 
for game of the week? Yeah, I'll uh, I'll go ahead and go. Um, I uh, my game of the week is Mass Effect Three. Not familiar with it. Is this a little indie thing? What is that? Yeah, yeah, it's a little thing by these guys in Canada. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, I have not uh, finished a single player yet, probably because I've been playing a lot of multiplayer. And then just for folks listening, we'll be careful with spoilers because I know a lot of Mass Effect fans yeah. are, are very conscientious about that. Okay. So the, the multiplayer is compelling. I mean, it's uh, uh, it's it's not bad. It's okay. uh, it's What's... surprisingly good. What's the base? I mean, I haven't actually paid much attention to the multiplayer. What's the basic concept? Oh, sorry, uh, you're opening a can of worms now. Oh, boy. it's uh, it's like a horde mode, except you can choose okay. the different Mass Effect kind of uh, archetypes to play as. Um, I've been playing as an engineer mostly. Uh, I know Tom's been doing it. What infiltrator? Uh, I'm going to put doing in quotes because, good Lord, did I make a mistake playing an infiltrator. Yeah, so uh, I'm, the, I'm the cloaked guy who can snipe. And I any mm-hmm. game where I'm supposed to line up a headshot, I, especially over the gamepad controller, I definitely should not be doing that. So, <laughs> yeah, I've been a, an infiltrator. Now, McMaster, what is the controversy about the multiplayer, though? Uh, the controversy is that it um, affects your single-player game. Uh, uh, much like... Crossing yeah. the streams, yeah, exactly. Much like uh, the Facebook uh, app can, as well as the two iPad apps now. Um, so it's kind of one of those things that it's a little weird that uh, what happens is you have an overall galactic rating. Uh, you start the game at 50%, and uh, depending on how many... Uh, war assets and different missions you do, your galactic rating uh, goes up. However, it's also affected by um, uh, by adding like actually a multiplier for multiplayer uh, if you play. So that if you play a lot of multiplayer, your galactic readiness rating is quite high, and you get a happier ending than if you don't. Wow. Now, McMaster, how do you feel about this? Does this does this bother you? Are you okay with it? What, what are your thoughts on that? You know, it personally doesn't really bother me, but I can see where people would be bothered by it uh, if they're not into multiplayer gaming. Uh, it seems like a punishment for people that don't want to actually play on Xbox Live or whatever network are you, you're playing Are on. people mostly playing with strangers or with... Groups, like, I, I end up playing a lot with strangers just because uh, there's so many people on at different times. Right. Uh, but um, it'll be interesting to see how that sort of feels when we're like six months down the road if people are not uh, in multiplayer. Well, there's there's the caveat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I. I... I th- like it. One of the things that they do well is they don't. It, it's really easy for you to get a low-level character playing with other characters. I mean, there's no. You don't have to be super good because it's strictly co-op right. and everybody scores the same amount of points. Like mm-hmm. if I'm playing with people who suck, we're all going to get the same amount of points. If I suck, which I do, and I'm playing with people who are great, then we're all going to get the same amount of points. So it's very democratic. Uh, it, it's not, and it, it plays very well in terms of capturing the same feel as the single-player game. Like, if you've played the single-player game and you're kind of used to the combat and the powers, you're not going to really have any problem getting into the multiplayer. So as far as the design goes, uh, I think they've done a really good job of tying it into the single-player. All the levels, by the way, are from the single-player game, which is kind of cool. Um, and, And so as far as how it ties into the story, I'm with you, McMaster, in that it doesn't bother me. 
But I think the people who are bothered by it don't quite understand how it works. And I kind of blame BioWare and EA for being a little coy about how they make the system work. Um, you know, they have said things like, if you play multiplayer, it'll help your, you get a better ending. However, you don't have to play multiplayer to get the best ending. Uh, and that's this weird mixed message. Like, well, what if I don't like multiplayer? Am I going to feel compelled to play it? And I think the way that it works, and they're reluctant to sell it this way, uh, is that it's the same thing EA does with, say, a driving game where you, like a Need for Speed or a Burnout or, or a, 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 you know, a, a whatever, a Need for Speed to Run, you know, all these driving games they do, you play them, and as you race, you unlock better cars. Now, if you don't want to get those cars through gameplay, EA has historically let you go onto Xbox Live and pay to unlock all these cars. To where if I sit down, I can pay my whatever, 99 cents, 5 bucks, Microsoft Space Bucks, whatever, and now I've got all the awesome cars right at my fingertips and I can use them immediately. What EA is doing is they're using the same approach, in a way, towards the end of Mass Effect 2. If I play uh, Mass Effect 3, if I play Mass Effect 3 and I don't want to do all these little side quests, I can instead not pay money, but pay time spent in multiplayer towards getting the better ending. Mm -hmm. Now, that better ending is still there. If I just play Mass Effect 3 normally and I like doing side quests, I mean, historically, that's how it works. The more side quests you do, the better your ending is going to be. Yeah, what EA is letting me do is just if I want my side quests to be not running around the galaxy and finding these little cool collectibles, but if I want my side quest to be, hey, I'm controlling this soldier in these multiplayer co-op adventures – those are like side quests. If I want those to be my side quests, I can apply that to the single-player game. Um, and I think a lot of people don't quite understand that's the philosophical approach there. It's a shortcut, or it's an end run, or it's letting EA decide how I spend my time to get that better ending. I can right. do it in single-player or multiplayer. And I, I respect that. I mean, I think it's a cool design concept, and I just wish they'd been a little clearer about how they presented it. Right. Well, that's, that's interesting to phrase it like kind of as an alternative to single player side quests because that does I mean that's that sounds kind of cool. I mean, yeah. I think I think what's probably going on here is there's kind of this this lack of trust that's kind of developed over the yeah. years as their games have just branched out so much beyond the the square box that they're supposed to fit into. You know that uh, you know you get you can get stuff from. You know, from Facebook and from DLC and from yeah. you know other apps you play yeah. and from where you happen to buy the game, right? And like it's you know once once we start going down that road, uh, you know I think for people who really want this very contained experience where they know exactly what's available to them and what's not, um, you know I think these things these things are inevitably just going to drive those people crazy. You yeah. know I don't. Uh, I mean, you know overall the multiplayer thing is fine. I think where they really have a problem is their DLC. Um, which I, I wrote about earlier this week, which is they, they, their day one DLC seems a little sleazier than normal this time, because uh, it's not it's only for the collector's edition version, but it cuts out a companion and a part of the story that seems kind of relevant. 
Uh, but Master, I'm not taking issue with you at all, but it's interesting to me that you use the terminology, it cuts out a companion, rather than <laughs> that it adds a companion. And, and yeah, I'm not bro. saying either is right or wrong, it's just the fact that, that that's a perception out there that's totally valid. Yeah, yeah you know, this, this dolls drives me crazy, and I don't necessarily want to, like, Laid out a flag and I decided this issue, but you you often hear this phrase when people are, when developers are talking about DLC that like oh we only worked on this after we finished the game right or before or it it really doesn't matter right like you no. you work on whatever you want to work on and then if you as a company want to make a decision that okay we're going to sell this game for this and we're going to have this DLC that does this fine right you you need to make use as a company yeah. and like as a consumer. We have to make our own decisions about what we're what we like or what we don't like, right? But there isn't some magical, you know, finish line where everything that's on <laughs> this side of the line should be in the game and everything that's on the other side is okay for DLC. Like that's imaginary. Right? Soren, yes. you're you're saying just what I would expect a suit to say. <laughs> but no, you're so right. And uh, there was there was a moment at GDC where uh, you could play a game. Like somebody could they they have these mini rants, and one of the rants uh, had the audience like play a game, and the winner of the game got to get up and give a mini impromptu ramp rant. And right. the woman who got up was a, a woman named Christine Norman, who used to be at Bioware. She's at Riot now, and she basically got up and said what you just said, Soren. Uh, that you know what. Quit judging. Quit having these a priori opinions on on DLC. Give it a shot. You, you know, trust us. Uh, uh, and and you know, don't just assume we are being sleazy, like like you said, McMaster. Uh, but that's that's a difficult thing to overcome. Yeah, there's a lot of mistrust that he has mean, built up over the years. The DLC may be may be bad, right? Like this may be a bad deal. Maybe people shouldn't buy that at all. I, I don't know, but right, like I mean, it's just the companies are are trying something, right? Yeah. And um, you know, it's it's got a it's got a you know, float or not on its own merits. Um, so, so McMaster, did you? Uh, I forget. So, did you actually get the From Ashes DLC, or are oh, you skipping it? Yeah, no, I have a problem with uh, not getting things. So, uh, right. yeah, I uh, I got it. And the the extra character, it's like it's not that he's necessary for the mission or his story is necessary for the game itself, but it it adds a lot to it. Right. Or not maybe not a lot, but like it adds a good bit to the background. We'll put it that way. So it, it sounds just like seems it's like it was designed with him in mind. It's just like the Dragon Age stuff, this, you know, where where the whole character is cut out uh, based on your pre-order. But this time they just kind of skewed the pre-order and was like, yeah, well, pay us ten dollars anyway. Right. Uh, now you are you're fairly early. You said in the single player because you've been distracted with your getting your galactic ready to set there with multiplayer, right? Twenty hours in or so. Oh I well, there you know you're well past half. Okay, well, so without spoilers, McMaster, uh, how are you finding it? Uh, I'm enjoying it quite a bit. Um, it's very dark. <laughs> it's a very dark game. Uh, that's one of the things that I love about it. Yeah, I love yeah. The, the dark. Yeah, it's right? uh, yeah, it's not as friendly. <laughs> Uh, how do you feel about the combat? They've done a lot of kind of new things, sort of tweaking how it plays as a shooter. Is this working for you? The only problem I have mm -hmm. overall with their system is that the A button is required for way too many actions. Yeah. Uh, so, like, I've run into a problem where I've had, like, a teammate down that I wanted to uh, revive, but there's a mission objective on his left and some cover on his right. So I'm hitting A, and I keep trying to start a mission objective, and then I slide into cover, and then back and forth. And meanwhile, they you know, bleed to death. So it's, just, it's absolutely infuriating. Other than that, uh, it plays 
quite a bit better than Mass Effect 2, I will say. Yeah. It, it does make me think of how in Gears of War, one of those early like uh, <laughs> aha moments with the interface is uh, decoupling that cover button <laughs> from, the, yep. from the run button. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, the road you run and the cover is a... Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, tell us what kind of character you're playing. What's your single-player build? Ah, my single player actually went with the engineer as well, uh, which I kind of regret uh, after getting tally. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, overall, uh, engineer's pretty good for the drones and the turrets. Mm-hmm. You're you're not a vanguard. I might have taken you for a vanguard. Yeah, I mean, it's always tempting, but I was kind of, uh, eh, what the hell. That was actually uh, that was a backhanded compliment, McMaster. Uh, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> Uh, all right, so game of the week, Mass Effect Three. The multiplayer is working for you. Uh, Soren Johnson, do you ever play Mass Effects? Uh, I played Mass Effect One, and I just I just don't have time for these type of games anymore. You know, like, they're long. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. I mean, I beat uh, I beat Nice the Old Republic, and it's probably the last major Bioware RPG I was able to to make it through. Um, and uh, you know, Mass Effect looked looked pretty interesting. Like I I wasn't sure. I wasn't sure what to think of the whole shooting with skills concept, you know. Um, but uh, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I hear I hear so many good things about Mass Effect Three. I mean, is it is it viable to just jump into the last one or or not? I would say yes, and, and I say that as someone who really disliked Mass Effect Two so much so that <laughs> good lord, I probably right. couldn't tell you half of what happened. Like I forget. You know, while playing Mass Effect 3, every now and then they'd reference something in Mass Effect 2, and not in an overt way, not in like a, uh, like I, d- I didn't feel like it was excluding me, but they would reference things from the last game, and I would be like, what? I don't remember that. Uh, but it does work because, you know, on one hand it's the end of the trilogy, but it is this kind of self-contained chapter. You know, horrible aliens take over Earth, and you have to go unite the rest of the galaxy to fight them. I mean, that's really all you need to know, right. and, it, and it works on that level. And as far as marrying that RPG design with the shooter design, uh, I feel they really hit a good balance in 3 well, that wasn't Yeah, it's not even that your shooter skills are in question. It's it's everything else, kind of. They, it's like all the skills support the shooting action. It's not like the skills are required for the shooting. Right. Yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, I, I, I um I met a, a designer from Bioware who worked on Mass Effect three at, during GDC, and I said, "Oh, and did you hear what uh, Tom Chick thought of uh, Mass Effect 3? And I, Uh-oh. he had, he had read your review, but like he, his, his, I guess his face go through these contortions of like, oh, <laughs> 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 like, like should he, you know, he knows that he should like not be open to multiple opinions, but at the same time, he's like, let me tell you something about Tom Chick. <laughs> and I was like, no, he, he really loved it. He's like, oh, uh, okay, all right. Not sure what to do with that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I'm just so happy with what they did. I mean, Mass Effect Three. I'm, I'm actually, I almost never do this. I'm on my second playthrough. So, wow, jeez. Uh, yeah, I'm thinking about doing it again too because there's a lot of options you can go for. It's not so much the options because I have to admit, I, and I hate saying this because I know those poor guys at Bioware must be so put out with me about how critical I am. I really <laughs> don't think they're that they're very good writers for the most part, and I don't, I, I just have such an issue with the story stuff. I mean, the, the broad story beats and the arc in Mass Effect Three really works for me, but the finer right. parts of the writing and a lot of the characters, all that stuff, just really doesn't work for me. And 
And that's, you know, I, they have their fans and bless them. I'm glad they're doing well. But the reason that I'm playing it a second time isn't so much to see the different options unfold, but it's because I really like the combat system and I want to mm. play it on the hardest level. So my second playthrough right now is on what's called insane combat level, and it really lets me experience some of this cool stuff they do in a different way. I mean, you know, that's a tough thing. You you want a game to be challenging but not too frustrating, so where do you draw that line? Right. And then you want, like, your enemies to have cool behaviors, but if the game is too easy, they're just, like, they're, they're little bags of a couple hit points that you that you mow down very simply. So now that I'm forcing myself to play on the harder level, I'm seeing a lot of these cool AI interactions that I didn't mm-hmm. see when I was playing on normal. Uh, for for instance, there's these creatures called uh, cannibals. And cannibals are... And I'm going to geek out just a little bit here because I actually followed the story and I read the codex and this stuff was kind of interesting to me. So cannibals are uh, the reaper-engineered versions of these, these this race called uh, Batarians. Um, and what a cannibal does is it just it has a gun and it's got a big old bubbly head. It just looks like a kind of a, a zombie that got put in a microwave. And it, it, it runs at you and it shoots at you. Pretty straightforward. If you play on normal, you just mow them down. That's pretty much all that you get out of that. But when you play on hard, you start to see that they're called cannibals because they'll stop at another body of a dead cannibal and they will crouch down and they will eat it. And when they eat it, they get armor. And that, that's this really cool behavior to where you've got cannibals coming at you, and you kill one, and you can then use it as bait yeah. to draw the other ones. And I, I, I never really appreciated that, that dynamic playing on the normal difficulty level, on insane difficulty level. And you can get this in the co-op, by the way. I love seeing that stuff. And all the different races, I feel, are much better distinguished now in terms of gimmicks like that. Uh, so that's why I'm replaying, not so much for the options, but just because I really want to enjoy this cool combat that they offered. So, all right. So, uh, two out of three of us on this podcast are Mass Effect Three fans. Soren, you should join the club sometime in the future. Think about it. All right, it. I'll, I'll look into it. McMaster, um, what does that leave us with today? I believe that leaves us with Soren. Soren Johnson's game of the week. All right, uh, my game of the week uh, is a little game called Bastion. Oh, all right. I take back everything I said about you being analytical and professorial and, and highfalutin and highbrow. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's true because it hits a lot of uh, aspects that are, you know, kind of go sideways to what I don't really look at for games. You know, the, the atmosphere is great. The music was great. The, the vis- visual look of the game is incredible. Mm-hmm. And the, the way it, it, the way it, like, just, I mean, how many games put, put that much effort into how the world presents itself to you? Right, like they didn't have to have all that stuff kind of fall from the sky as you walk, right? But that's so, so core to like the the feeling of Bastion, you know. Um, but basically, I mean, like sort of late to the party here. But after GDC, you know, I'd kind of gone through a week where I'm like, okay, I really don't want to talk about games anymore, um, you know, and I don't really feel like working on a game. It's time to just play a game, right? <laughs> and uh, you know, Bastion had been sitting in my you know, Steam list for a long time because, you know, I just saw it, you know, on sale one day, grabbed it because I figured, you know, I got to play this eventually. And that I played it eventually, you know, I, and I played it on Sunday. And, 
it was it was great. You know, I really I really loved it. Um, you know, now, did I, you did you like go through it in, in like one sitting? Like, have you seen all of Bastion yet, or you're still uh, playing? It? I, I finished it. Uh, I think it took two sittings. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of had one big sitting, and then I realized, whoa, I'm almost I'm almost done with. It. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should <laughs> go do something else for a little bit before I. <laughs> How did you feel about the length of it? How do you feel about a game that you can finish in two sittings? Uh, I felt I felt great about that. You know, like if you know. I mean, if I had paid fifty dollars, I might have felt differently. But uh, um, I'm totally happy to play a game that just you know asks for a few hours of your time. You know, I think that's great, especially for something that is story based. You know, because I think I think story has a hard time the longer the game stretches. Yes, right? yes. Um, and uh, I was impressed that they were able to. They gave me enough toys to where um, there was this. I felt like there was enough time for me to play with. You know all the toys that were involved in the game, right? Um, and it was interesting. Did you go to the uh, Did you go to the Bastion talk? You know uh, what I didn't. Was it Darren Korb talking about the music? Or oh no, Greg Greg Kasavin. Yeah, yeah, there were a couple of Bastion talks. I'm afraid I missed them both. I did, however, get to sit down with Greg and do like a longer podcast with him shortly after the game came out. But I did miss the talk. Did, did you see those? Yeah, um, I mean, he did a great job of you know stepping through. You know how like atmosphere was just their abs- kind of like their their top level goal, um, and you know it definitely it definitely hit that. It was um, it was interesting because you know, I played through the game, but I, I still can't basically tell you what the story is or what happened. You know? <laughs> I can give you some vague ideas, but um, you know the more I think about it, the more I actually like that. Like I yes. I like games. Um, I think it's a bit like maybe song lyrics, right? Like I think the best lyrics don't aren't too explicit. You know, they they kind of leave a lot of room for you to kind of imagine what they're about, right? Or and, I would just go ahead and throw out uh, the the other p word, uh, poetry. You know, there's sure. prose and poetry, and and Bastion feels like you've just read this awesome poem. Right, exactly. And you know, the the whole the whole issue with games is always you you want to leave room for the player, right? Right. And the more, so the more strict and, and structured and, and literal you are about a specific narrative, and this is the stuff that happened, you know, the less rude. I mean, Bastion doesn't really have branching paths like you'll see in a lot of RPGs, but it leaves more room for the player to kind of imagine what the story is about than, you know, even like kind of a typical Bioware RPG that has kind of like the two classic paths, right? right. Um, like, there's a decision at the end, there's a big decision at the end, that it's, it's interesting that it just you just make the decision and that's it, basically, right? Like, it doesn't really have sort of a payoff. It's more, what's interesting is the fact that you made a decision and what that says about you, as yep. opposed to what the game tells you about, you know, did you make the right decision or wrong decision? Obviously, there isn't one. It's more that after the game's over, you might reflect back on, like, why did I end up making that decision, you know? Um, and so there's just so much just so much room in that in that world for for the player's imagination, which has generally been my issue with with story based games, I really just have so little interest in those games. Yeah. Uh, could you say so? It occurs to me, Soren, when you say that you know leaving room for the player, and it says more about you, what decision you make at the ending. Uh, here's a bit of a Rorschach test. McMaster, have you finished Bastion? Have you gotten through it? Uh, I did not actually. Okay. Have you even played it? Yeah, I've played it. I, I liked it quite a bit. I just haven't finished it. Yet. Okay, so I'm going to throw this question at you as well, McMaster, uh, right. even though if you've, if you've seen it. Can you, in maybe one or two, maybe three words, a short line, what would you guys say Bastion is about? How, how would you answer that question? 
That is a tough one, I know. But but I think it's kind of a Rorschach test. And you know what? You don't even have to answer it. But I, I think when you ask someone that, if you were if you were to examine that question, you can do that with any game. But I think Bastion especially is is ripe for that kind of uh, that kind of Rorschach test. You know, this says a lot about you when you when you were to consider and wonder what is Bastion about. Uh, so I would I have an answer for that. I think uh, sure. I would I would say Bastion is about regret. I was going to say redemption, but yeah. Ah, well, see, that says a lot about you, McMaster. It says a lot about me. Uh, Soren Johnson, <laughs> are you willing to, to, to come forth and, uh, with a little personal information about yourself by saying what you think Bastion is about? Well, I'm, unfortunately, I kind of got a little bit spoiled in the sense that, like, in Greg's talk, he said, Sebastian is basically about regret. <laughs> oh, I win. <laughs> you know, and, and I have to Damn. say, maybe I actually, I, I don't know for sure, maybe I actually yeah, got that, that from talking to Greg yeah. myself. So I don't, I can't claim that I came up with that on my own. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he's, you know, it's not, he's saying we're not being dogmatic about it, right? Of course, it's open to interpretation, but that's the, you know, that's the theme of the work, right? That's what right. we may think about. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's got this longing, wistful quality, you know, it's, it, you know, um, because like everything, everything it seems like all, everything that's important is kind of locked away from you in the past, and you only have this like tiny kind of peephole into it. And so, you know, it's it's um, you can, you kind of imagine what was what was lost, right? And it's hard it's hard not to wonder about that. And to be fair to McMaster, I mean, ultimately, it's about how you get around that. Like it's about how you sure. deal with regret. And if uh, you know, if the ending could be argued, you know, that there's redemption there. Uh, so, uh, so McMaster, I think it, you, you, I would love for you to see the ending of Bastion. So yeah, I, I'll, I'll finish it. I'll have some time. One of the things I love that they did, Soren, is uh, the toys, as I think you put it, uh, all feel different. Sure. Like, yeah. like they did such a good job of not making it a sword and then a sword plus one and then right. a gun and then a gun with a bigger magazine. Uh, like all the different toys, which you can upgrade, have a different. Uh, Kind of vocabulary for how right. they interact with the different monsters in the in the world and how you use them, like their interfaces, even right. uh, just a real smart RPG, like action RPG design right. in, in that regard. Yeah, uh, it's um, it reminds me a lot of Adam's Zombie Smasher, and it has just the uh, right yes, number, okay. just the right number of options, and no more. Yes, right. Yeah. No um, fat, no fat in the gameplay. Yeah, right. I mean, there were definitely a few options that I didn't. You know, it's interesting actually. Like I when, I, when I look at this type of game, I think the one, kind of the more pertinent question is like, what was your what was your favorite build, right? Like, what were the two <laughs> weapons that that you tend to like the most? You know, and I liked I liked the machete and the the cross the like the rapid firing crossbow. Um, I, I have to admit that I ended up just sort of cheesing uh, my way out with like I think you get a rocket launcher and you can get homing missiles and. Mm. In a way, I'm kind of glad that they didn't – like, it doesn't work well against everything, but I get the sense that, hey, that's kind of overpowered, and I'm okay with the fact that they let you use super overpowered stuff and just, like, bombard the field with things. Uh, right. Like, I'm okay with the fact that they didn't want everything to be equal and that you could maybe not break the game but certainly push the limits of balance and tuning. Uh, right. In a single-player game, you can do that. Uh, yeah. And that's more of a feel thing, and it's something that happens late, and it also happens later in the game. True, right? yes. It gives you a different emotional response. Um, well, and then there's the new game plus, though, where you can then go through it and just blow stuff up with your overpowered build, if you want. Right, right. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. All right, well, good pick. That was actually, uh, you scooped my pick for game of the year from last year. Oh. So. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, so uh, good. A little Bastion, a little Mass Effect Three, a little SSX. Nobody picked a game that that was that was awful. Soren Johnson, what did you say your game of the week was not? Oh, Wasteland. Uh, Wasteland. Wasteland. Right. Right. Um, all right, so Soren, thank you for hanging out with us today. Uh, that was awesome to chat with you about GDC. Um, yeah, it was great to be here. I really enjoyed it. Next time you sit down and boot up a video game, mm-hmm. what will it be? What will it be? It'll probably be Portal Two. Ah, good. All right. Yeah, that's, that's the other one I was, you know, kind of wanted to tackle after GDC. Yep. Uh, uh, McMaster, next time you sit down and boot up a game, I'm going to make a guess. Mass Effect 3 multiplayer? Probably. All right. Well, I'm going to go play some <laughs> SSX. So. All right. Uh, all right, so everyone, thanks for listening. Uh, please, uh, let me see. Let me run down the list here. Like, no, follow us on Twitter. We are at at QT3. Uh, like us on Facebook. I think I'm forgetting. Oh, oh and uh, rate us on iTunes. That is your homework uh, between now and next week. Uh we will be here next week with, uh, for the first time, I think, I will be the least crotchety person on the podcast because it will be me, Jason McMaster, and a fellow named Michael Barnes. Oh. Boy, speaking of uh, analytical and professorial, uh, Michael <laughs> Barnes, he might run circles around you, Soren Johnson. Oh, my. All right. <laughs> Uh, so folks listening join us for that next week Uh, I am Tom Chick this has been me Jason McMaster Soren Johnson thanks for joining us and we'll see everyone around on the forums everybody everybody let's get to it get to it get started get started get started let's get it started let's get it started let's get it started let's get it started Soren, did you ever see a movie called uh, Hot Tub Time Machine? <laughs> no, not, not, I know what you're talking about, but not yet. How about... Uh, you're, you're not... Yeah. God, what was well, the... That's this, uh, that's Harold and Kumar. Harold and Kumar oh, had this, except the original version. They ah, had the, well, no, this like, is a... Let's get retarded, not the let's get right. it started version. <laughs> no, this, is, this is a remix by the uh, inimitable uh, Craig Robinson. Soren Johnson, Craig... do you know who Craig Robinson is? I love Craig Is that for the... It's not the lead singer of the Black Crows, is it? <laughs> What's his name? Soren, please never change Soren Johnson. <laughs> I know I'm wrong. Uh, he's the black dude from, like, Pineapple Express that was the uh, other guy. Oh, that guy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's Craig Robinson. He's yeah, hilarious. Okay. The All right. that, seems more, that seems more fitting. <laughs> yeah, that guy's great. <laughs>